Tonight's reading will be from 1 Peter, um, found on page 1217, and we're reading chapter 1, starting at verse 13. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you his holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each person, work impartially, live out your time as foreigners, here in reverent fear. For you know that it is not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you are redeemed from the empty way of life, handed down to you from your ancestors. But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. like to keep your Bibles open at um, page 1217. Am I live there? It's working. Keep going, that's fine. Good. It's page 1217 and we're looking together at verses, it's 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 through to the end at 25 there. Forty years ago in uh, 1977, which Sounds positively historical, doesn't it? Forty years ago, I spent three months in Israel. I'd been a Christian for a, for a couple of years, and I thought it would be a good idea to go and investigate the Holy Land, the land of the Bible that I was looking at and studying and learning about. And I had a great time. I took my rucksack and a tent and just backpacked around Israel for three months and, and camped by Lake Galilee and sat by the Red Sea and all those lovely things. And it was a very exciting thing to do. And while I was there, I, I bumped into an American tourist, the archetypal American tourist with the three cameras around his neck. And in those days, they weren't digital cameras. They were like analogue ones that weighed an absolute tonne. And there was this poor guy staggering along, and we, we just got chatting. And I said that I'm in Israel for three months. How long are you here for? Three days. He was doing a three-day tour of Israel. How can you do Israel in three days? That's what he was doing. And... As I looked at these verses in 1 Peter to prepare for this passage, I thought, how can I do this passage in 30 minutes or 20 minutes or whatever it might be? It's an enormous amount. So, so like that poor guy in Israel that must have been dashed from one bus to the next or just saw things out of the window, I think our, our journey through 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 13 to 25 is going to be slightly brief in places and you're going to think, well, well, slow down, Phil. There's some really good and important things here and there are, but we just can't stay at them. Thankfully, Peter, 1 Peter's epistle unfolds. So hopefully what I miss out or maybe what grabs you will be unfolded by the other people who are preaching it later on so I, I've 
divided the verses into, into four things. So four calls. That Peter gives various calls to the people of God. And that's what he does. First of all, we got in verses 13 and 14, we, we see a call to do. And then in verses 15, a call to be. Then in verses 17 to 22, the call to live. And then finally in verses 22 to 25, the call to love. So there's lots of action. Alison often says about a sermon that they've given us nothing to do. Well, honestly, there is so much to do here. Either you will go home exhilarated or you'll go home exhausted. I I hope it's the first of those. So verses 13 and 14, if you'd like to turn there, the call to do. Verse 13, look at it together. It starts with the word therefore. And therefore is, is the link verse. Somebody once said this little therefore is the hinge on which the whole epistle of 1 Peter like bends as it were. Peter starts off in verses 1 to 13, which David spoke to us um, last time. And um, the call to do is there, therefore. So verse 13, therefore, Peter reminds his readers that what they are in Christ, and at the end of those 13 verses, really, our jaws should drop. And if I just remind you very briefly what was, what was spoken last time. So what are these people that, people that Peter is now addressing? These Christian believers that are scattered. What are they? Verse 2 of chapter 1, we see that they are a chosen people. And they've been set apart by God for a new life of, of joyful obedience to Jesus Christ. And that's the same that's happened to us. We are a chosen people, set apart by God for a a life of joyful obedience to Christ. And then in verse 2, we see that they had received and were receiving abundant grace and peace. Verse 3, we see that they had been born again into a new life. And that had come about through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They had a sure and certain inheritance in heaven, in verse 4, that was kept them. You can see this, this treasure trove is getting deeper and richer by the second. Verse 6, they were greatly rejoicing because of this. They were rejoicing even in the midst of trials. Verse 8, they were experiencing inexpressible and glorious joy. Verse 8, continuing, their, the, their faith and love for the Lord Jesus Christ, was growing. It wasn't standing still. They were growing in their love and in their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 9, we see that in short, what they were experiencing was salvation. This is what Christ had come to bring. And this is what these people were experiencing. They were knowing God's salvation. Salvation from sin and condemnation, but salvation to a life that is glorious. And they were enjoying that, and they were filled with inexpressible and glorious joy. So Peter says, therefore, in the light of what God has done, this is what you now should do. This is your response to to what God has done for you. He's lifted you out of of one existence and he's placed you in another, a glorious one. And there's a response. And there's a response that the call to do is always having realised what God has done. 
And there's a, there's a kind of relief in that. The call to do isn't this like this browbeating somebody into doing something. The call for any Christians to do anything is in the light of what God has done for us and has given for us. It's called growing up in our salvation. Salvation just doesn't start and finish at conversion. That's just the very beginning. We grow up in our salvation. And Peter is wanting the believers to do that. So what does Peter call them to do in the light of all that God has done for them? We're still in verse 13. We've got to press on, haven't we, really? Verse 13. He calls them to prepare your minds. In in verse 13 there in the NIV it says, with minds that are alert and fully sober. We've got to engage our minds in this work of growing up in our salvation. We've got to have minds that are alert and fully sober, it says here. In other words, get your minds into gear. Get ready to go. Get ready for action. Be self-controlled. Get your mind ready. The, the literal translation, which some of you older folks remember from the authorised version, is gird up the loins of your mind, which is, sounds so archaic, doesn't it? You youngsters sitting here, gird up the loins of your mind. You old folks are smiling there because you know exactly what it means. It, it's the picture of the runner. It's the picture of the New Testament guy in his long flowing robes and he can't run when he's got the robe round his ankles. So what they used to do to run was they girded up their robe into their girdle, their belt, and then they could run swiftly without any encumbrance at all. And what Peter is saying here to the believers, gird up the loins of your mind. Get ready. Get ready to grow up in your salvation. Get ready to do the things that God wants you to do. Now, this to Peter was an important thing. Gird up the loins of your mind. Get ready for action. But what does he mean? Yet Three times in this little epistle, Peter says the very same things. I'll just read it for you. In, in chapter 4, verse 7, Peter says, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you can pray. We need to be alert and of sober mind so that we can pray. And then verse, chapter 5, verse 8, Be alert and of sober minds because your enemy The devil prowls around like a lion. We need to be alert. We need to have our minds in gear, ready to go. And part of becoming a Christian, part of our salvation that we grow up into, is that our minds are being changed. And that's that's one of the exciting things, isn't it? We're so very often stuck in our ways. But when the Spirit comes to live in in our hearts, he transforms our minds. Paul explained that to the believers in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. He says, be transformed, be transfigured by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to know what God's good, pleasing and perfect will is. Our minds are being renewed, being transformed. That's exciting, isn't it? That's what God is doing in us, transforming, renewing our minds. So that all of a sudden we find ourselves understanding things, believing things that we would never have believed before. Because the Spirit of God is renewing our minds. So get your minds in gear. First do, get your minds in gear. Second one, the second do, is still in verse 13. We're not getting very far on our journey, are we, this evening? Second one, set your hope. Set your hope where? 
set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. This is in eternity. We set our hope. At the very end of time as we know it, that's where we set our hope. Not in this world, but in in the very end of time, we need to set our hopes. Set your hope... And then, for some reason, the new version of the NIV, maybe we should, maybe they've made a mistake, misses out a word. All the other translations include it, every one of them. But it says, therefore, set your minds, set your minds on the grace to be brought to you. There's a word, fully, is missing. In the Greek it says, set your hope fully, absolutely, with completeness, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. Where is your hope this evening? Where really is your hope? Is it short term? Oh, another week and then my holiday or whatever it might be. Or another year and then retirement. Or another ten years and then retirement, whatever it might be. Where is your hope? Is it set in that that glorious, is it in Christ? So that when he comes, that's when your hope, that's when your hope is realized. Because then our salvation that we're growing up into is fully, fully realized. And only then will we be perfectly and completely satisfied. So our hope is not in this life. Our hope is in the life to come. Here, Peter reminds the readers, we're foreigners and exiles. As David said last week, we're passing through. We're crossing the bridge into this new life, into this new existence. Two do's. Prepare your mind, set your hope. Second do is do not. Do not. Verse 14, look at it there. Verse 14, do not conform to the old way of life. Romans 12, 2 again. Do not conform to the pattern of this life. Don't, don't be molded by it. Don't be influenced by your old life, your old desires, but rather be transformed, be be entering, be living this new life. Don't be conformed by it. As Christians, we we have a double life. We live in this this life. The, 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 The body of sin is still in us, and yet there's a new life within us, and there's a conflict going on, isn't there? Romans is all about that. And we need to transfer, trans, transfer our work and our hard work to renewing the new life, to, to be molded and influenced, not by the, the world, not by sin, but to be molded and influenced by the gospel, by the Holy Spirit. Verse 14, as obedient children, it says, as obedient children... Chapter 1, verse 2, that's what we're chosen to be, obedient to Jesus Christ. And it's as though obedience is now our parent. We are children of obedience. That's what we do. That should be our natural bent, to be obedient to the things of God. Now, we're on the learning curve there. We're progressing in that. But hopefully, as we grow in holiness, it should become easier to be obedient because we are children of obedience. Paul, in speaking to the Ephesians, refers to those who are outside of Christ as the children of disobedience. So we know in our own hearts that our natural bent, natural earthly bent, is towards disobedience. We don't like, particularly God, telling us what to do and how to do it. And, and we find it difficult. 
But after a while, because we're children of obedience, it's what we do. So the call to do, do prepare your mind, do set your hope, but do not conform to the old way of life. Start to conform to the new way of life. We must press on. Verse 15. So we had the call to do. Now we have the call, the second point, the call to be. Verse 15. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. The call is to be. To be what you now are. You are holy. You have been chosen. You have been set aside. That means you're holy. You're set aside for God. That's what we are. So the call to be is to be what you are. But again, it doesn't come easily. It comes with a bit of effort. It comes with the engaging of our minds and our hearts and everything. All of our energy putting into be what we now are by God's grace. We are holy. Holy means set apart for God. It means separated from this world of sin. In chapter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, Peter says, You are a chosen people, a holy nation, the people of God. 2 Corinthians 6.16, God has said, I will live with them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate. Again, later on in Corinthians, Paul says, Therefore, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence from God. The call to be is to be holy. And it's not just sitting there and it all happens to us. We need to engage in this. We need to to purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit. It's a lifelong mission to perfect holiness out of reverence for God, but it's something that we should be doing, even in Brighton and Hove here this evening. It should be something that we're doing to please our God. So when are we to be holy? At church? On a Sunday evening? Is that the place where we're holy? Is it when people are watching? No, it says there, be holy in verse 15. Be holy in all you do. Be holy in everything. Be holy at school. Be holy when you're watching TV. Be be holy in your thinking. Be holy in your business, in your study, in your friendships, in your sport. Be holy in your driving. Be holy in your marriage. Be holy in in all that you do. Be holy. Be holy in all that you do. Because it's written, be holy because I am holy. Be Christ-like. Be God-like. Be pure. Be honest. Be righteous. Be fair. Be truthful in everything that you do, because this is being holy. To some, that sounds grim. We we used to call the the Christians at school and the Christian people, Holy Joes. Remember that phrase? Oh, here comes Holy Joe. And probably isn't used anymore, is it? Here they come. To be holy is the most liberating thing that can happen to a believer. It is absolutely liberating because it's the environment where we really do feel at home. We're in this, this, this catch-22 situation. We don't feel at home in the world anymore, or we shouldn't do. We, we kind of like the things that are there. We're tempted by them, but we don't feel at home anymore. And, and that when we're not living for Christ full-on, as it were, we, we don't kind of fit into his church either. But he says that if we are holy in all that we do, it's utterly liberating. It's like a fish 
in water. It's where it belongs. It's like a bird in the air. It's where it belongs. And the other day I saw one of these animal things that the people paste on, on, on Facebook. And it, it was some little pigs. And they'd been let out of captivity. Some pig farm somewhere. And, and they were let out into this field of mud. And where is a pig at home? These little things, they were, one, they were running around the field. It was so sweet. They were sticking their snouts in the mud. And they were at home. That's the environment that they belonged into. And for us, being holy is the environment where we belong. Now, maybe to some of you youngsters, that sounds crazy. But it really is. Forty-odd years I've been a Christian. And I'm still learning that. That to be holy is where we belong. That's where God wants us to be. It's where we come alive spiritually. It's where we begin to see God with greater clarity. The writer to the Hebrews makes it very clear. He said, make every effort to be holy. Make every effort to be holy because without holiness, no one will see God. That's what it says in Hebrews. Do we want to see God more clearly? Here is the step to be doing that. Be holy because I am holy. Even our Lord says in Matthew 5 verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, the holy ones, for they will see God. We do want to see God. We pray, Lord, let me see you more clearly. Then be holy, because I am holy. The Holy Spirit is at home in a pure heart. We are at our best when we live our holy life. The call to do, we've read that, the call to be, be holy. We're not doing too bad on our lightning tour of 1 Peter. We're at verse 17. So the next call is the call to live. Verses 17 to 22. Live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Being holy and set apart doesn't mean hiding away in some holy huddle. Thank goodness for that. That's frightening, isn't it, to live in some holy huddle. But being holy and set apart, we, we are to be in the world. We are to be in the world living out our lives to God's glory. We are to live in this temporary abode, in this passing through, in reverent fear, it tells us here. Reverent fear is not some kind of like absolutely being petrified, cowering in a corner, but it's a sense of awe and respect, a godly fear. And again, Peter spells this out in chapter 3, verse 15. But in your heart, revere Christ as Lord. Philippians 2.12 is, is very clear. Continue to work out your salvation in fear and trembling. It's not a big joke to be a Christian. It's not a laugh to work out your Christian life. There needs to be that sense of, of godly awe and respect for God. Live out your time with a deep seriousness, with a reverential attitude to God. Why? Why should we do that? Why should we be living our lives in the fear of God? Why do we need to fear? Surely, God doesn't, doesn't need us to fear. Doesn't he love us? Doesn't that the gospel's about God loves us? Doesn't he put up with our faults and sins? Hasn't he covered those over? Doesn't he look at us and see the righteousness of Christ? Yes. Yes and yes. But he wants us to grow in holiness. He, he not only imputes the righteousness of Christ to us at salvation, we wear, as it were, a, a, a robe of righteousness that we can enter directly in the presence of God and not be struck down. We can walk into the holiest of God's presence 
in the righteousness of Christ, like a robe. And we can come with confidence before him. But by the Holy Spirit, he imparts righteousness too. He is placing righteousness in. It's growing as part of our growing in Christ. So why then do we need to fear? And verses 17 and 18 provide the answers. One, verse 17, because we will be judged. We've got to give an account of our life lived here, our pilgrimage, our, our, our journey through this, this world as Christians. We are accountable for the things that we do and say. That sounds scary, doesn't it? But that's what the scriptures teach. We don't hear much about that, but it's true. We will be judged. We have to give an account. Paul says the same to the Corinthians. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. This is to Christians. He's saying this. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we do this and that. We will be judged. That's scary, I can hear you say, but it's meant to be. It's a spur towards holy living. We need to live in a, in a godly, reverential fear of God because we are accountable for the things we do and say. It's important that we live a holy life. The next thing, the next spur towards holiness, verse 18, is that we have been redeemed at great cost. We have been bought by God. Our salvation was not cheap. It was horrendously expensive and he paid that price. Nobody else could have done that. It was the Lord Jesus Christ who took our sins upon himself. He bore the curse, the wrath of God that we might be set free. We have been bought, purchased by God, not with silver or gold as it says there in verse 18, but with the precious blood of Christ. Our redemption was costly. So what an insult to our loving God, our Heavenly Father, not to live our lives in this world in obedience and holiness. So we have judgment to spur us on. We, we have the desire to please Him and not to offend Him. Our modern culture has bred an over-familiarity with God. I'm, I really do believe that. Maybe the Victorians went too far the other way and they were so afraid of God. But we have bred a, an over-familiarity. I've written here, we skip around in the fields of sin like it doesn't matter. Christians do that. It does matter. It matters a lot. We need to live holy lives. I know that we're on a quick tour of these verses, but I, I just can't rush by the second half of, of verse 18 because when I was studying this, it was like I was on this coach journey too. And you know, out of your window on the right is the Dead Sea and on your left is the Sea of Galilee. And over there, is, it was, it's a bit of a rush through. This, this, as you can understand, this, this really deep passage with lots in there. But when I got to verse 18, I just had to get out of the bus. It was just, so, the view was terrific. I just couldn't, and, and maybe God in his leading me for this sermon, maybe this verse was important for somebody for all of us here this evening, it spoke to me. Verse 18, we have been redeemed by God at immeasurable cost from the empty way of life handed down from your ancestors. And it was just that phrase, the empty way of life. 
And I think your guys are studying Ecclesiastes in the morning, is that right? Which is Solomon tries to do, what's the purpose of life? Or, or the teacher in Ecclesiastes, if you're not sure it's Solomon. What's the purpose of life? And he did everything. And he did all, everything he could think of to find the purpose of life. He was puzzled by what is the purpose? It, it, it drove him nuts. So he tried wine, he tried women, he tried wealth, he even tried work to find the purpose of life. And all he found was emptiness, meaningless, meaningless, he said. It's just meaningless. Vanity, vanity. All is vanity. Life outside of Christ, when you boil it down, is an empty way of life. We might build great big buildings with our life. Some people only manage a garden shed in their lifetime. Other people, it seems, they build a city with, with, with their time that they've got in this world. But if you look, it's empty. There's nothing behind it. There's an emptiness in life. Sometimes you sit down, what's the point of life? I'm born, I live, I die. And when I've lived, I've learned all this stuff and I've made so many mistakes and I finally learned it and I die and it's gone. It all seems utterly pointless, doesn't it? The Christian life, the New Testament screams this out, is a life of fullness. And that to me is the glory, and it really is. Sometimes in our hearts, when we're, when we're close to the Lord and we're praying or whatever we might be doing, there is that sense of fullness. The Spirit comes in, we speak of the Spirit's fullness. There are a dozen verses that I've written down. I'm going to read them all. I'm going to read a few. Just grabbed out of the New Testament. Jesus, in John chapter 1, verse 16, says, Out of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Out of his fullness we receive Ephesians, Ephesians is full of fullness. The church, us, which is Christ's body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Chapter 4, verse 13, until we become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Paul wants them to grow up in their salvation, attaining the fullness of Christ. 5.18, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And I could go on. Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. For in Christ, the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to that fullness. So, the way of life that's handed down, there's an emptiness. Maybe some of you here this evening, maybe as Christians, you think, do you know what? There's an emptiness. There shouldn't be. Because in Christ, the fullness of God is given. It's not an instant hit. I'm not preaching here an instant, do this and that and you'll be filled and life will be happy ever after. It's a struggle. But Christ, there is a fullness that's there. And it is attainable. It's not some wishful thinking. And, and holiness is a road to that. that there is a joy in holiness. Yes, our hope is set in the, in the long-term future. When Christ comes back in his glory, and he brings with us that grace, then we'll go, yippee, amen. This is what it's all about. And we will be filled to beyond fullness because we'll have a new redeemed body and that will take even more of God's goodness and blessing. In the future, we anchor our hope, but there is a present blessing. Christianity is not dull. 
It's full and there's a fullness to enjoy. There's a foretaste. The Holy Spirit gives us a foretaste of the glory to come. We're going to sing in one of our hymns at the end. Solid joys and lasting treasure, none but Zion's children know. We are Zion's children. We are children of the God. We are, we are God's church, God's people. Holiness leads to deep joy, wonderful fullness, that sense of being utterly content in Christ, a richness that money can't buy. That's the call to live. Live life to the full. Live for God and he will live in you. And living in you, he brings his fullness. Finally, the call to love. I'm just going to skip this one. We're just going to drive the bus through the call to love. Just, just, we'll just look out of the window, okay? Because the good news is, is that fullness is, is for sharing. Fullness is not just for you to go and sit in the corner and go, I am so full, it's wonderful for me. Fullness is for sharing because holiness leads to love. Now, 1 Peter brings this out. 1 Peter is an expounding of of this loving one another in Christ. So I'm not dodging the issue. It's going to be dealt with in the next few weeks, so come along. But holiness leads to love. Love for Christ in a deeper way. Love for our fellow believers because we are united together. We We are family. We are these people that have been pulled out of one dimension and put into another. And love for humanity. Christians just love humanity. It's what they do. It's what we are as Christ. So we need to love each other deeply, it says, from the heart. Sincere love with full intensity. None of this mamby-pamby stuff with just a smile on your face. I love you dearly, but I don't really. This is a love with, with deep sincerity, with, with full intensity. You find it difficult to love some people? Well, work at it. We all do. Then we need to work at it. We need to love one another with, with, with love and full intensity. Verse 23, let's just touch on that. As Christians, we are eternal creatures. You've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. Our new life in Christ is an eternal life. It's lived in an eternal sphere. It's something altogether different. The realm in which we now live in Christ is different to this world. It's miles above that. It's the world of God. It's a spiritual dimension and world. And Peter goes on to say that the grass and the flowers, they wither, they fall. But not so the word of God, that goes on forever. And so with us. Physically, we begin to wither. Physically, we fall. That's what happens too. It's a sad thing, isn't it, old age? These, young, these old people, once they were young and they were skipping around and you, you see yourself getting older and there's, there's a sadness and there's a, there's a melancholy in that as we're getting older. Is it a problem? No, not with the gospel, not with the knowledge of God because when we're absent from the body, when we do fall, what happens? Present with the Lord. Absent from the body, present with with the Lord. And one glorious day, we shall be reunited with a resurrection body, a body to match our resurrected soul. There is so much to look forward to. One day we shall wake, says David the psalmist. David could see this from before the time of Christ. He said, one day I shall wake in his likeness and then I shall be satisfied. And that's true for us who are believers. One day we shall wake in his likeness. And then we shall be satisfied. No wonder it's called the gospel. It's beyond good news, isn't it? It's great 
news. And God is calling us this evening, using Peter's words. And it's just as much for us as for the original hearers. He's calling us to get our minds in gear. He's calling us to set our hope on that eternal future. He's calling us to be holy in everything we do. He's calling us to live out our lives in obedience, in trust, in joy. He's calling us to use our new riches, to bless others, to be loving and kind. Salvation is this ongoing experience, this ongoing journey. It's a great challenge. It's a great privilege to be in Christ, to know his fullness. And may he, by his grace, show us, give us, and lead us into that fullness for his glory's sake. Amen.